0: Well, may I begin by uh, thanking International House and the University of Chicago for the opportunity to speak here today. It is a a great privilege to be at one of the United States' great seats of learning, indeed I think one of the great seats of learning of the world, and I'm, I'm very excited to be here, and also to have the chance to sample for myself some of your famous weather And so far, so good, I guess. Though uh, I was reminded of the story of the weekend um, of the sinner from Chicago who died and went to hell and on arrival told the devil that the heat wasn't a problem because it was just like Chicago in the springtime, which provoked the devil to crank up the heat a great deal further, which in turn meant that the sinner loosened his collar and just said it was like Chicago in the summer. And this provoked the devil to crank the heat to full blast. And the sinner looked around and took his shirt off and said it was like Chicago in August. And the devil was about to give up, but had a, an idea. So he shut off the heat and turned on the air conditioning. And Within seconds, the room had frozen. Ice had covered everything. And the devil congratulated himself on what he thought was a, a winning play. But when he looked up, the sinner was running around cheering that hell had frozen over and the Cubs had won the World Series. LAUGHTER Well, I'm delighted to say that the uh, British official presence in Chicago dates back even further than the Cubs' last World Series win, Uh, and further, indeed, than the establishment of this great university, which I'm told was founded in 1891, because the consulate this year is celebrating its 150th anniversary in the city, having first opened doors in 1855. And I believe that before the 19th century was out, Chicago had entertained its first royal visitor of the shape of our then Prince of Wales. And the links between Britain and Chicago have been expanding ever since. Again and again, this city of constant change and innovation has fascinated and captivated my countrymen. And I am very proud that today your Lyric Opera, Chicago Opera Theatre, and the School of the Art Institute here all use British talents in prominent leading roles, And proud, too, that so many Britons hold top positions in business, the universities, and many other institutions that contribute to the extraordinarily rich cultural business and academic life of this amazing city. And Britain and Chicago are also exchanging ideas and experience in some of the key areas of public policy, areas which affect us all, policing, public services, urban renewal, the new diplomacy, as I would call it, is now as much about swapping best practice, shamelessly plagiarizing good ideas in health, economic and social policy, as it is about day aid memoirs and signing treaties. Britain's economic and commercial links with Illinois are, I reckon, second to none. We're the largest foreign employer and investor in this state, with around 200 British companies employing around 60,000 of your fellow citizens and I think these companies recognize the benefits of being located at the crossroads of the world's largest economy making their own contribution to the amazing diversity of a city where I'm told that on any evening there'll be a hundred languages being spoken around the dinner tables and it's very much this theme of the world on our doorstep that I'd like to touch on this morning The founder of International House, John D. Rockefeller, Jr., said the success of each is dependent on the success of the other. And this is as true for nations as it is for individuals. The community of nations is now heavily interdependent. This makes dialogue and cooperation absolutely essential, not just to improve the chances of success internationally, but equally to reduce the chances of costly international failures. This is a lesson that's been well learned by transatlantic partners over the past 60 years, for together we contained and ultimately overcame the totalitarian challenge posed by the Soviet Union to our way of life. In doing so, we showed that persistence and determination in defense of our principles and values can can bring about fundamental change for the better. Well, now we face new challenges, But transatlantic dialogue and cooperation remain as central to the successful meeting of these as they were to our success in the Cold War. And it's in the context of these new challenges that I want to reflect on the priorities for 2005 for my own country, but more widely for the transatlantic partnership. And this is an exceptional year for the United Kingdom because we have just assumed the presidency of the G8 from you on the 1st of January, and we take on the presidency of the European Union on the 1st of July. So we will be running these two presidencies together for the second half of the year, which makes it a critical year for us. You don't need me to tell you that the relations across the Atlantic have been turbulent in the last couple of years or so, but there does seem to be reason now to think that 2005 is offering the opportunity to reinvigorate our partnership. Just 10 days after his re-election, President Bush met Prime Minister Blair in Washington, and he said at their joint press conference, all that we hope to achieve together requires that America and Europe remain close partners. We are the pillars of the free world. We face the same threats and share the same belief in freedom and the rights of every individual. In my second term, I will work to deepen our transatlantic ties with the nations of Europe, I intend to visit Europe as soon as possible after my inauguration. And my government will continue to work through the NATO alliance and with the European Union to strengthen cooperation between Europe and America. That's what he said in November. Well, last month, he made good on that commitment, traveling to Belgium where he held meetings with the heads of state and government of the European Union and of the NATO alliance, And he also had meetings with Prime Minister Blair separately and with Chancellor Schroeder, President Chirac, and President Putin. And I don't think there's any doubt that meeting was a real success, and that's not just polite diplomatic speak. It really was a powerful reaffirmation of shared values and common aspirations, a powerful restatement that Europe and America are the twin pillars of the free world, And it signaled, I think, the President's willingness to use the transatlantic partnership to tackle global issues through NATO and through the European Union. The President came to Europe, of course, having set out a very powerful vision for his foreign policy in his second term. He laid this out in his inaugural speech and the State of the Union Address, when he said that his goal is to end tyranny by promoting freedom and to bring peace by eliminating the conditions that feed extremism and intolerance. In Brussels, when he went on his European visit, he said that this was not a goal just for the US, but for a reinvigorated transatlantic partnership. Today, America and Europe face a moment of consequence and opportunity. Seizing the moment requires idealism. We must see in every person the right and the capacity to live in freedom. But seizing this moment also requires realism. We must act wisely and deliberately in the face of complex challenges. And seizing this moment also requires cooperation because when Europe and America stand together, no problem can stand against us. As past debates fade, as great duties become clear, let's begin a new era of transatlantic unity. I think modern Europeans have a strong sense of what it means to secure the right to live in freedom with the invaluable support of the United States because the spread of democracy has been the defining theme for Europe and for Europeans since 1945. And in 1989 90 we saw the fall of communism, which has allowed us to reunite a continent that was divided since the Second World War. And now we find ourselves as Europeans standing on the threshold of further change, because this year and next, the people and parliaments of the European Union decide whether to ratify what we call our European Constitution. This has already been agreed by governments, but it's now a question of whether or not uh, the, the peoples and parliaments will ratify it, and if so, bring it into force. If we do, the Constitution should, I think, make the European Union more coherent in its decision making and therefore more effective. And that, in turn, should mark a genuine point of evolution in the transatlantic relationship. Because Europe should be able to play its role as the US's strategic partner of choice a good deal better. Some commentators have been asking whether the Bush administration really supports this evolution. Does it want a strong Europe? And that's a question I think the president importantly laid to rest from our point of view when he said at this recent meeting with EU leaders there should be no doubt in your mind that my government in the United States wants the European project to succeed. It's in our interests that Europe should be strong. And the strength of the reinvigorated transatlantic partnership will rest on being one of equals. Because, as Tony Blair said, if America wants the rest of the world to be part of the agenda that it has set, it must be part of their agenda too. It can do so secure in the knowledge that what people want is not for America to concede but to engage. The hard-headed approach should stay, the one that says don't assert it, prove it, face up to the difficult realities as well as the easy platitudes. And it's some of those difficult realities that the Prime Minister has mentioned that I want to turn to now. First, the uh, Middle East peace process between Israel and Palestine because I think it's impossible to conceive of stability in the Middle East region without resolving the Arab-Israel dispute. It has such wide-ranging implications. It has such enormous resonance internationally. And progress on the peace process will underline the chances of success in promoting reform across the whole Middle East region. And that, in turn, will underpin the chances of success in tackling the causes of terrorism it's worth saying to you that the Arab-Israeli question also plays into the transatlantic relationship too and the chances of reinvigorating it and improving it because European governments and publics place huge importance on this issue. And so the greater the effort that the United States administration is putting into trying to resolve the problem, the more significant the impact on European perceptions of the United States. And so it's with real pleasure that the Europeans see that in his second term the president has put the peace process at the very center of a common transatlantic approach to the whole wider Middle East issue. As he noted in Brussels, Israel's security from terrorism must be assured while Israel in turn must help the Palestinians to build a thriving economy and ensure that a new Palestinian state is truly viable with contiguous territory on the West Bank As he said, a state of scattered territories won't work. Well, this is exactly the vision that European leaders share of a two-state solution that is peaceful, permanent, and just. I'm only too aware, not least from having served myself in Israel, that we've seen many false dawns. But I think there are now grounds for what one British commentator said in the FT the other day, for less certain pessimism, I would go further and say for some cautious optimism. The election of Mahmoud Abbas or Abu Mazen brings a new leader who is untainted by bloodshed and one who seems genuinely keen to bring Palestinians the security and the other improvements in the quality of life that they have sought for so long. He's shown through his efforts in reigning in the terror groups that he intends to be a serious partner to Israel. The ghastly bombing of civilians in Tel Aviv on the 25th of February illustrates the scale of the challenges that he faces. President Abbas roundly condemned that bombing, calling it sabotage of the peace process, and the Palestinians themselves made some early arrests, but he's going to need international support in facing down these terror groups and international help to enact the necessary reforms to the Palestinian security services to make all that possible. At the same time, Israel's been making some bold moves of its own, with Prime Minister Sharon pushing through the decision that Israel should disengage from Gaza, despite fierce domestic political opposition, and I think he deserves great credit for that. He's opened the prospect of a Gaza run by and for Palestinians, with the perspective that this will in turn be an important landmark on the road to a two-state solution. Prime Minister Sharon's meeting with President Abbas in Egypt last month and the ceasefire announced there is another piece of evidence of a new atmosphere and of a new fragile chance for progress in the region. Because this conflict is only going to be resolved in the end by negotiations between Israel and Palestine direct, although certainly as I have said, support from the international community is going to be absolutely crucial in getting there. And that's one reason why my Prime Minister hosted a meeting in London on the 1st of March to try and galvanize international support for the Palestinians. Because a Palestinian state is going to have to be built on much more than just territory. It's going to require democratic institutions, a viable economy, and fully functioning security machinery. President Abbas and the new Palestinian government took the opportunity of the London meeting to outline their plans to build the institutions that are going to be needed to underpin a viable Palestinian state. The international community was there in the form of the Quartet, which is composed of the United States, the United Nations, the European Union and Russia, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the Arab League and 20 other national delegations. They all welcomed these plans, and they have agreed to support the Palestinian Authority in the areas of governance, security, and the economy. I would like to pay a word of tribute here to the United States because the U.S. contribution on this is already very considerable. Secretary Rice played a key role in the London meeting. She went there. She committed herself to this. And the appointment of Lieutenant General Ward as the U.S. security envoy is further proof that the president does believe a settlement is attainable, as indeed is his announcement of a further $390 million worth of American assistance. And at that London meeting, as well as the United States, my own country, Japan, Qatar, the UAE, and the European Commission have also announced new pledges of support. So I do think it's a time for hope and that we can allow ourselves the luxury of some fragile optimism. But we also have to face up to what my Prime Minister has called the difficult realities, because, of course, moving on from here is going to be very difficult. There are extremists and terrorists who are hell-bent on blocking progress and preventing a peaceful settlement. And one of the very great priorities we all have is to confound them. And maybe, just maybe, we now have an opportunity to do that very thing. Equally, I think it's a moment for fragile optimism over Iraq, which has been such a tortuous subject for so many difficult months. And here, I think the transatlantic partnership is faced with three challenges. We need to build on the success of the remarkable Iraqi elections in January, by supporting the political process that's now begun and helping with the drafting of a new constitution. We also need to ensure that the Iraqi security forces are trained and equipped to provide Iraq's internal and external security without us. We need to expedite the process of reconstruction of the Iraqi economy so that Iraqis can see for themselves that there really is a change and an improvement in their daily lives. As far as the political process is concerned, I do think the elections were an extraordinary example of how people do want to exercise their democratic rights if they're given the chance. I am struck by the fact that in the northern provinces, turnout was at least 80%, in the south, over 70%, and even in the central areas where it was very, very much lower, A lot of very brave people turned out, despite the intimidation. And I think it may be true that a psychological barrier has been shattered. Iraqi politicians are now engaged in the kind of intense discussions which we're all used to when it comes to the makeup of democratic governments. And some are asking my government, and no doubt the United States government, what we think about this candidate or that candidate. But I think it misses the point because it's now for the Iraqis themselves to fashion a new government through the usual processes of coalition-building and compromise, and not for us to try and steer this process. And it takes time, and it's frustrating, and it's easy to be impatient. And as Deputy Prime Minister Baram Saleh put it, he expected long sessions where Iraqi politicians would drink gallons of tea in smoke filled rooms, and so far he certainly hasn't been disappointed. But that's democracy for you. What we have now is an outbreak of politics, which I think does offer a springboard for progress in a critical year. Because once the Iraqi transitional government is in place and the transitional national assembly is in session, and we're now told that that will be in a few days' time, their key priority is going to be to set up a national constitution and to hold elections under that constitution by the end of this year. It's an ambitious timetable, and it's an exciting prospect, and they're going to need unstinting international support to get there. And that's why I think it was very important that when the president was in Europe, partners on both sides of the Atlantic made clear that they were now determined to help the new Iraq. I think where we are now is that we are all determined to look forward in hope rather than back in recrimination. The EU foreign ministers have uh, committed themselves to increase political engagement in Iraq, and the European Commission is going shortly to open an office in Baghdad. We also want the UN to play a leading role in coordinating offers of assistance, and I think I should pay tribute here to the extraordinary support that they gave to the January elections in Iraq. They have been much criticized for many things, but the efforts of Mr. Valenzuela and many others were really outstanding. And we hope that the UN will now bring its expertise to uh, the constitutional debate that's about to begin. But the political process obviously needs to be supported by progress on security. And during the President's visit to Europe, all 26 members of NATO agreed to provide support to the NATO training mission, either through provision of personnel or through finance. This and continuing support from coalition members deployed in Iraq should help to step up the tempo of Iraqis taking charge of their own affairs and uh, we now see training Iraqis, as the Iraqi se- security forces, as really a top priority for the coalition. Finally, of course, we must not lose sight of the enormous task of rebuilding and developing Iraq's infrastructure. Promises of international financial support are fine, but they must materialise and they must be seen to change things on the ground. U.S. and European leaders have underlined their determination to improve the flow of aid to Iraq, including the much-needed enhancing of donor coordination mechanisms. But as we look ahead this year, we should keep in mind UN Security Council Resolution 1546, which asks the Security Council to review the coalition presence this June. And certainly we've always made it clear that if the Iraqi government asks us to leave, then we shall go. But ultimately, I suspect withdrawal won't be so much about deadlines as about building indigenous capacity so that Iraq can successfully manage its own democratic process with the tools to foster economic growth and provide for its own security. And as that becomes possible, so it will become possible for us to withdraw what we are doing and in due time to leave. Another major concern where we have to face up to the Prime Minister's difficult realities is Iran. And here I would just touch on three particular issues. The first is the Iranian nuclear program. Iran claims that its ambition to master uranium enrichment technology is to produce fuel for nuclear power stations, not nuclear weapons. But 18 years of Iranian clandestine nuclear activity means that the international community is deeply skeptical about Iran's real intentions and has concluded that Iran must be judged not by words but by actions. Britain, France, and Germany, the European three, or the E3 as we refer to ourselves in the trade, have together persuaded Iran to suspend work on the nuclear fuel cycle. And as long as this suspension holds, we have said that we won't support referring Iran's nuclear activities to the Security Council. Well, the suspension has so far held for three months. And we are engaged still in intense negotiations to try to persuade Iran to give up its uranium enrichment facilities for good. A second area of difficulty with Iran is over Iraq. And here there are indications that some in the Iranian security structures want to meddle in and influence Iraq's internal development. We're prepared to acknowledge that Iran has a legitimate interest in what happens in Iraq as far as its own security and its own neighborhood is concerned. But it has absolutely no right to interfere in their internal affairs as they work towards setting up their constitution and moving towards elections in the way that I've already described. And finally, there's Arab Israel. Iran's policy on this is at best ambivalent. And we have to make clear to all parts of the Iranian regime that support for terrorism, support for anyone who's trying to wreck the fragile peace process is completely unacceptable. As with Iraq, it's in Iran's long-term interest to work for stability in the region, not against it. None of this is easy. Transatlantic dialogue on how best to handle Iran is absolutely essential And I think you'll have seen from some of the media coverage after the president's visit that there has been a step change in the intensity of that dialogue across the Atlantic. European and Russian leaders have joined the president in publicly stating that an Iranian nuclear weapon is unacceptable. And the president's visit also made clear that diplomacy is the way forward with support for the E3 initiative over the whole question of the Iranian nuclear program. And the President's undertaken to think about how the U.S. could assist this process more directly, and that's very welcome to those of us in the E3. Because in the end, we have a common aim in dealing with Iran. We have to inhibit destabilizing behavior in the short term, while working towards a stable relationship with a non-nuclear Iran in the long term. How do we achieve this? Well, as I say, there are no easy answers, but I think it's important to say that in Europe, we believe we have to pursue a policy of critical engagement. We aren't, I hope, gullible. We're not going to sacrifice our principles on the altars of political, economic, or commercial expediency. We see critical engagement as meaning straight talking in private about the consequences of Iranian actions whether positive or negative. And we are only too aware that there is no guarantee of success. Iranian decision-making can be very opaque and very difficult to influence. But I think that the E3 efforts on the nuclear file do suggest that engagement might produce results. And we certainly think that the challenges that Iran poses are too serious for us not at least to try and we also think in the E3 that critical engagement is likely to be our best option in the long term. Iranian political structures are not monolithic. And despite the religious authorities' efforts to clamp down, Iranian civil society remains dynamic and diverse. And we think we can use engagement to encourage debate within Iran about the benefits of economic and political reform. Isolating Iran risks producing the opposite effect. Iran is a huge proliferation challenge, so is North Korea. And on this, on the Korean Peninsula, as in Iran, diplomacy offers the best path to remove the threat posed by nuclear weapons. It's important that the international community gives a unanimous message to the North Koreans develop nuclear weapons and you face isolation and insecurity and renounce them and there will be a better prosperous more secure future for the north korean people the united states and the countries in the region have recognized the need to work together on resolving this problem through the six party talks we in the uk we in europe are not party to this we don't have a seat at this table but the united kingdom does have its own diplomatic presence in pyongyang where we make clear that we fully support the process underway, and that there's no difference at all between us and the United States, or indeed the United States as international partners. And I think one of the very interesting aspects of the P6 process is that you find China adding its voice to those who are urging the North Koreans to return to talks and give up their nuclear ambitions. Indeed, China is right at the heart of the P6 process. And it's very good, I think, to see the United States and China working closely together on an issue which is crucial, not just to regional stability, but global security. We in the EU want to work more closely with China as its economic and diplomatic influence grows. But at the same time, no one in Europe wants to build closer relations with China at the expense of U.S. security. We have absolutely no intention of destabilizing the security situation in East Asia, where we greatly value, we greatly appreciate the role that the United States has been playing for many decades. And this brings me to a hot topic, which is the debate now over the EU's arms embargo on China. And I would say that this has generated a great deal of heat so far, but not much light When the EU imposed its embargo at the time of the Tiananmen Tiananmen episode, it covered large armaments and lethal weapons. And it didn't capture the sorts of technologies that concern us today, such as dual-use technologies, high-weapons platforms, high-tech weapons platforms, or the components, often very small components, that are critical for state-of-the-art command and control systems. So in 1998, the European Union devised its own mechanism to cover export of this sort of commodity. We called it, in a famously leaden phrase, the Code of Conduct. And although this isn't catchy, the Code is very important. And it's also extensive in its scope. And most applications for exporting sensitive items to China are controlled not by the embargo, which is of diminishing relevance in today's defense technologies, which, by the way, has no legal force, but by the code, which is far more sweeping in its scope. Under its terms, all EU partners commit themselves not to export items which could be used against our own forces or those of our allies, not to export items which would threaten the stability of volatile regions like the Taiwan Strait, and not to export items which would be used for internal repression in countries with poor human rights records. We think that this code, which came in in 1998, has passed the test of time. And I would just add that it's that very same code that captures our exports to other places, not just China, places like North Korea and Iran, where there is no embargo in place. And it's this code which would ensure that if the EU does go ahead and lifts the embargo in place since 89 that it would be a political step, not one, that would unleash a flood of arms exports to China. The code will ensure that the EU lives up to the commitment that our leaders gave in December last year that any decision to lift the embargo will not be a quantitative or qualitative shift in EU arms sales to China. And to give everyone even greater confidence that this really is the case, we want to achieve higher levels of transparency over our exports to China, both among ourselves inside the EU, but also with our key allies such as the United States. And we want a proper dialogue here, both on security in East Asia, and in the light of that discussion, to determine then what goods and technologies we can export to China, and what we should not. Our aim, in short, is to strengthen and modernize our export arrangements, not in some way suddenly to take them away completely. Beyond these issues of the Middle East, of Iran, of East Asian security, I want to end by touching on our priorities for our G8 and EU presidencies in London because my Prime Minister is committed to trying to generate new momentum behind two longer-term problems, those of the poverty problem in Africa and the need for development and the problem of climate change. In Africa, it really isn't right in the 21st century that 300 million people are without access to safe drinking water, that 3,000 children under the age of five die each day from malaria, or that 6,000 people die each day from AIDS. Africans are determined to take action themselves to prevent their continent from falling further behind. They often get a bad press, but there have been impressive achievements, and there are now some 15 countries that are managing to grow at 4% or more. And despite the horrendous events in Darfur, there are actually fewer conflicts in Africa now than there were 10 years ago. Democratic governments has been making progress. Human rights have improved. Economies have been liberalized. But, of course, formidable obstacles remain, and Africa can't do it on its own. The Africans need the support of the international community, which is why the Prime Minister declared 2005 the year of opportunity for Africa. Helping Africa to help itself is seen by Tony Blair as a moral duty, but it's not just that. It's also one of enlightened self-interest. Poverty and weak and failing states create instability and become breeding grounds for terrorism, which is why he set up the Commission for Africa in May last year, a commission that includes 17 men and women from government, business and civil society from around Africa and the rest of the world, including the United States. And its job is to provide a comprehensive plan on how the international community can support African development. It will almost certainly call for substantial increases in aid, but it will also highlight the work that we need to do across the board. Encourage private sector investment, promote intra-African trade, tackle the cancer of corruption, promote good government, invest in infrastructure and education. The Commission's reports due out later this week. The ideas it advances will be taken forward at our G8 summit meeting in the summer, which we're having in Glen Eagles in Scotland. Bringing about real change is one of the things that we hope that G8 Summit will promote, even though ultimately the responsibility for this has to rest with African governments. Progress on economic and political reform and tackling corruption will go a long way to attract domestic and foreign direct investment, which is so badly needed in Africa. But the developed world must do its bit. We must look seriously at opening key markets, we must agree on finding substantial increases in funds for development. There are numbers of ways we might tackle this. We in the UK have have proposed several from 100% debt relief to an international finance facility, which might mobilize anything above $25 billion. But the precise mechanisms and the combinations of mechanisms quickly turn, I think, into a technical discussion And what matters is that we really set out to generate a real increase in resources. Because that's the yardstick that our commitment to Africa will be judged against. And our second long-term priority in our G8 presidency is climate change. And I'm very well aware that this is pretty contentious on this side of the Atlantic. And one thing that I am also clear about is that we're not about to ask the United States administration to sign up for Kyoto. But what we do want is support through the G8 for three objectives when it comes to climate change. The first is a signal that we can unite behind the proposition of a reduction in greenhouse gases. We, in my country anyway, think that the scientific consensus for this is pretty overwhelming. And all global economic actors, we think, need to recognize this as an issue that we have to tackle together. I would say this was given a very welcome push when the President said in Europe the other day that we must work together to address the serious long-term challenge of global climate change. second thing we want to do is develop a package of practical measures focused on technology to reduce emissions, clean energy technology. And the third is to build a partnership with rapidly developing economies like those of China and India to work out how we can encourage growth in a low-carbon way. And if we can't find a way of doing that, it won't work. We don't think that the solutions to the problems need involve drastic cuts in growth or standards of living. Since 1990, the United Kingdom has cut emissions of greenhouse gases by 14%, while our economy has grown by 33%. New technology is usually cleaner, and more efficient so it is a classic win win but this is an issue that won't go forward and can't be tackled unless we really have global cooperation well you've listened very patiently and you'll understand that this is a very full global agenda and that's only part of it and i do think that the issues that i've tried to touch on here have effect for us all and the transatlantic community has got to work in partnership and take on a leadership role in dealing with them. I want to end by just quoting what my Prime Minister said on the 22nd of February. Whatever the differences in the international community have been over the past couple of years, I think we have a really solid basis now for going forward in a unified way. And if we take that opportunity, it will be greatly for the benefit of the whole of the international community. Thank you very much.